We're in Mark chapter 14 tonight. Mark chapter 14. We've entered into the last of Mark's story. These last three chapters are the last days of Christ on earth. And uh, we divided it into an alliterated list. We began talking last week about a time of sadness. And honestly, this is still sad. We're, We're still in a sad part of this chapter. And it'll be sad right up until the resurrection. We talked about sadness. We talked about a sad response by Judas. A sad rejection by Judas. And then we glanced in on the supper, the last supper. We saw that there was a prepared Savior, a precious symbol, the elements, a promise that was spoken in verse 25, and then a powerful song. Now, tonight what we want to look at is verses 27 through 52. We will not get all the way through this tonight. We'll we'll put this into two parts. We want to talk about his seizure. And what do I mean by that? I mean when they seized him, when they arrested him, when they took him into custody. Um... You're going to hear me reference this a lot. You understand that at no point did Jesus ever stop being in complete control. At no point. Even as he hung on the cross, he was still in full control. It's interesting. Um, Jesus and the 11, look at verse 27. Jesus, well... Verse 26, and when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives, and Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I'll go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, Thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I would not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. So, Father, would you help us tonight? Help me to rightly divide your word of truth. Lord, just use me tonight. Or set me to the side, whatever you need to do. Oh, but speak to us in an unusual way tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus and the eleven, Judas is gone doing his thing, make their way from the supper to Gethsemane. And what's really interesting about this is most scholars believe this is the same route that David took when he was fleeing Absalom a thousand years earlier. Now, I think there's some interesting parallels there. David was in many ways a type of Christ, obviously not in every way, but in many ways he was a type of Christ. Look at the parallel here. When David is fleeing Absalom, 
He is coming face to face with the consequences of his sin. In, in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan told him, the prophet, that he would pay fourfold for his sin. And Absalom's rebellion and ultimate death was one of these payments. Well, what is Jesus doing? He's not coming face to face with the consequences of his sin. But he is beginning to come face to face with the consequence of my sin. He did nothing wrong. And yet he's about to pay what I deserve to pay. The sins of all mankind. When you read verses 27 through 31, all of it takes place while they're walking. Sometimes we we read these things and we tend to think of them sitting in the room. No, Verses 27 through 31 is happening while they're walking towards Gethsemane. Gethsemane was, was almost certainly a, a privately owned olive press. And it, it seemed to have probably a fence around it or a gate around it of some sort, some kind of wall around it. And that's where Jesus took the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, in further. But he reminds them on the way. By the way, in these verses we just read, you can also insert all of John 14 through 17. All of that is being said while they're walking. Can Just think for a second. John 14 through 17. What was Jesus, Jesus giving the disciples as they were walking? Think about it. John 14, 1 through 6. I am the way. The truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Verses 7 through 15, he teaches them about the Father and about answered prayer. Verses 16 through 31, he gives them the promise of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 12. I'm sorry, 1 through 17, rather. I am the vine. He teaches about fruit and about love. Chapter 15, verses 18 through 27, he warns them of persecution. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 33, he speaks more about the Holy Spirit, about the role of prayer and how to have victory. And then chapter 17, the true Lord's Prayer, his high priestly prayer that they get to hear him pray on the way to the garden. This is not some leisurely stroll where he just throws out a little bit. No, they are getting rich, deep truth on this walk. They get there, and Jesus reminds them of a prophecy in Zechariah 13.7, that all of them will be offended. That means they'll stumble. And they'll scatter. They're going to abandon him. But even in that terrible news, verse 27, he immediately follows that dire prediction with encouragement. You're all going to forsake me. You're all going to scatter. You're all going to abandon me. 
but after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. It's going to be all right. Peter's response in verses 29 and 31 begin to show us some traits of Peter that are going to lead to his terrible denial of Christ. And we're going to get into that maybe next week, certainly the week after if not, but I think next week probably. We'll get into that, and I want you to remember what we covered tonight. We're going to see some things in Peter that kind of telegraph his failure. Can I give you one just as a, to whet your appetite? Jesus said, you're going to scatter. Peter said, not, not me. Peter had a problem with thinking that Christ's word didn't apply to him. And when we start thinking that God's word doesn't apply to us, we're headed for some pretty bad mistakes. That one was free. At verse 31 is where you would insert Luke twenty-two thirty-one. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, an interesting note about this journey, would you hold your place here and go to John chapter 18? There's an interesting note here in verse number 1 that John gives us. John 18 verse 1 says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. You may not realize this, but there's a certain poetry to this verse, and it's found in two words. The first word I want you to notice is the word garden. It's meant to take us back to the Garden of Eden when all this mess started. Jesus would begin dealing with sin in the same kind of place that it began. It began in a garden, and he would begin to fix it in a garden. The other is the Brook Cedron. There's another name for this brook. It's called Kidron, K-I-D-R-O-N. It, it varied in how big it was. This time of year would have been very, very uh, small. It would have been nothing more than a stream. But what's interesting is where it came from. It came eastward out of Jerusalem. And the priests would use this natural aqueduct to drain the blood of the sacrifices. In the midst of Passover, this little stream would be red with the blood of the Passover lambs. What do we take from this? What began 
in a garden would be remedied by blood. It's the only way it could be. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 15, 45. It's one of my favorite names for Jesus. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam, (laughs) Jesus, was made a quickening spirit. See, I'm the first Adam. But I'm going to heaven because of the last Adam. And so, we look to this beginning period of time in which Jesus will be seized, he'll be arrested. And we'll look at his arrest next week. But we begin in the garden with his agony. The reason I believe that the redemptive process starts now is because he's already in agony and he's already seeing the sins of mankind. It's already beginning. Verse 32. They came to a place which was named Gethsemane, which by the way means olive press. They came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. He went forward a little. Another gospel tells us about a stone's throw away. And fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. He cometh and findeth them sleeping and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Can I give you something that's not in the outline in verse 37? I think it's needful for us to notice this. How many of them are sleeping? All three of them. Why didn't Jesus say anything to James or John? Seems unfair, doesn't it? Because the Lord deals with different people in different ways. And Peter would be given the responsibility of preaching the great sermon at Pentecost. And when you're given great responsibility, you're held to a higher standard. And so the first one Jesus speaks to is Peter. Sometimes we're tempted to get ill when we feel like Jesus or the Lord is dealing with somebody else less harshly than he is with us. He has a reason. He knows what he's doing. Anyway. Verse 38, watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, neither wist or knew they what to answer him. And he cometh the third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It's enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. His agony. First of all, his agony of spirit. Verse 32. They came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed 
and to be very heavy. Why do we say the agony of spirit? Notice two words, or two phrases rather in verse 33. I'm sorry. First of all, notice a sore amazed. Sore amazed means to be stunned with painful astonishment. Very heavy is a little, a little bit easier, more expected, to be deeply weighed down. So Jesus, as he approaches the garden, he is stunned with painful astonishment, and he is deeply weighed down. Why does Jesus feel this way? I'll tell you why I believe it is. I believe it's because he is now beginning to see the sin that will not only engulf him, but will temporarily identify him. Now, what do I mean by temporarily identify with him? First Corinthians, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians 5.21. For he, the Father, hath made him, the Son, to what? Be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And now Jesus, in his deified mind, in his sight that goes beyond what we have, is seeing every impure thought, every rape, every abduction, every murder every instance of child abuse, every instance of trafficking, every drunk driving accident, every theft, every hatred, every bit of bitterness, all of it. He sees as the Father is gathering that sin to lay on his Son. This is an agony of spirit. Do you ever encounter some kind of a sin that seems to just strike right at your spirit? The truth is we don't as often as we should because we've gotten real good at getting desensitized to sin. The sinfulness of this world does not bother us like it should. We are rarely, rarely astonished anymore. It should fly all over us, but it doesn't. But remember, we're talking about the perfect virgin-born Son of God who has never known sin. He knows of it, but he's never known it. And now the sin of all mankind, 6,000 years of human history, is being prepared to be laid on him. And it's an agony of spirit. But then we see an agony of soul. Because you know that when our spirit is injured, it will soon find its way to our mind and our emotions. You know that we're triune beings, right? And if things aren't right with us spiritually, it's not going to be long before it's going to start affecting our mind and our emotions. And that's what happens with Jesus. Not that he wasn't right, but he is injured in his spirit, and now it finds its way to his mind and his emotions, his soul. Look at verse 34. He saith unto them, my what? My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch 
And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Jesus is so injured in his spirit and now his soul that he feels the chill of death itself. And this is compounded by the failure of his three disciples to watch. When you're in agony of soul, what you want really more than anything else in that moment is to have somebody there to help hold you up. But many times you don't. Jesus is descending into the darkest valley he could ever know, and his disciples couldn't even stay awake with him. Matthew 26 tells us that when he falls, Mark says he fell on the ground, but Matthew says he fell on his face. And this displays his suffering. Have you ever been so injured, so agonized in soul that when you went to pray, you just collapsed before the Lord? Said, no, not me. Then something's not right. Because when we get exposed to sin, it ought to agonize us especially when it's our own. When I see my sin through the mirror of God's word, I ought to be so agonized over it that I collapse before the Lord. But instead we excuse it, don't we? We make light of it. So Jesus is in agony of soul an agony of spirit. So what is his response? What does he do? Now, I would love to tell you that there's this three-point outline. This is what you do right here, and if you do this, just like you said, everything's going to be just fine. But it, That doesn't exist. But the Bible does prescribe what you're supposed to do. You do what Jesus did. You pray. But let me ask you something. Did Jesus' prayer keep him from the cross? No. And sometimes your prayer is not going to keep you from whatever God has for you either. But you still need it. Because without it, you're not going to make it. Agony of soul, his response was prayer. Can we talk for a few minutes about what kind of prayer we're talking about? First of all, it was an isolated prayer. Verse 35 he went forward a little. I'm all for corporate prayer. I believe in corporate prayer. These cottage prayer meetings, I believe God is and will continue to honor them. But sometimes there's just the need for you to get alone with God. Nobody else around. An isolated prayer. You know what else? It was a persistent prayer. What does it take to make you give up praying for something? Time? Circumstance? The only thing that should cause us to stop praying for something is if God makes it clear we're to stop praying for it. Sometimes that's through an answer, or sometimes it's just, it's like my father when he was dying of cancer. We prayed for God to heal him, but there came a point that we knew that God wasn't, it wasn't his good will to heal him, and so we stopped praying for that. But short of those two things, there shouldn't be anything that stops us from praying for things. Now, where do I see that? Verse 35. 
He went forward a little and he fell on the ground and prayed. Now, now what, is, what does that have to do with being persistent? I try not to be overbearing when it comes to the Greek, but we dare not leave it out completely. The word fell in the Greek is an aorist tense. That's pretty much a simple past. He did something in the past. He fell. But the word prayed is different. The word prayed is an imperfect tense, which has the idea of something that happened repeatedly in the past. So what would be a more specific way of translating that? He fell, but he kept on praying. You're going to fall from time to time. Be persistent. Keep on praying. Keep on praying. I don't have this on here, and I frankly don't know why. But it was an uninhibited prayer. Hold your place here and go to Hebrews. I don't know why I left this out, because it's a really good one. Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 6. As he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? Who is that? That's Jesus, right? Okay. So we're speaking of Jesus, verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with what? Strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. He was uninhibited. I wonder how many times we've not prayed as fervently as we should because we're afraid somebody might hear us. I'm not a crier. Maybe you ought to become one. You know what else? It was an honest prayer. Verse 35. says, He fell on the ground and prayed, that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Verse 36, take away this cup from me. Now, I'm not going to get into it tonight. I do not believe that Jesus was praying to avoid the cross. I don't. My personal belief, and it is mine, you don't have to hold to it. My personal belief is that Satan was trying to kill him right there in the garden and that Jesus was asking not to be killed in the garden. That's what I believe. Because it doesn't make any sense to me. You say, well, he was, he was within his humanity. I get that. But his humanity would not have caused him to think that the plan of redemption that's been in the work since eternity past somehow could have a change, some other way of doing it now. Jesus knew better than that. Think about it. Hebrews 12.2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus was not trying to get away from the cross. He was trying to get to it. 
If he'd have died in that garden, redemption's done. Redemption's done. He had to die on that cross. Here's a good one. Speaking of Messiah, Isaiah 50, verse 7. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. But even so, he's asking God the Father honestly for what he thinks he needs. Have you ever tried to impress God with your prayers? And in doing so, it got a little bit dishonest? I have. Me and Brother Branson have had some kind of snafu and we're, at, we're, we're ill with each other. And I know I'm supposed to pray God bless him. Lord, bless Brother Branson. Oh, God, just pour out, blood, pour out blessings on him, God. No, I'm not going to do that. Here's what I'm going to say first. Lord, you know my heart. And you know that I want Brother Branson to see that he's wrong. <laughs> and I want him to make things right with me. But I'm going to pray that you bless him because I know that's what I'm supposed to pray. But I'm being honest with you, God. I'd just soon you work him over. Why would you pray dishonestly with God? Does he not already know where you are? <laughs> he knows where I am more than I know where I am. Here's another one. It was an intimate prayer. Verse 36, and he said, Abba, Father. Now, it's interesting. Father speaks to his position of sonship. He has every right to come to the Father and ask for what he needs. But Abba is the term used by a little child. It would be equivalent to our daddy. When I'm good and asleep, particularly now that I use this dumb CPAP, there's very little that can wake me up. Very little. When I lived in Alabama, we had tornado sirens close by the house. I say we. I lived alone. Me and the dog. And uh, anyway, I came in one day and... I, guy that was there at the church, he said, man, did you hear them sirens last night? I said, nope. He said, you slept through them? I said, yep. Well, what are you to done if a tornado? I guess I'd have died. <laughs> I don't want to be woke up just to find out I'm about to die. I'd rather just wake up in heaven. When I, I remember the first day I was there on site, I'd come to, to preach for him for Easter. And uh, me and another guy were praying in the auditorium before the Easter service. And while we were praying, whoop, whoop, I'd never heard one of those before. And I looked at him and I said, I always imagined the rapture would be a little more, lo more melodious than that. <laughs> he said, that's a tornado siren. I said, where's the basement? He said, we ain't got one. Great. 
Anyway, very little wakes me up. But I can tell you what will. The faintest little daddy. Now, I may not be completely with it, but I will be conscious. Now, if they sneak in and just climb in the bed, I may not wake up for that. But if they say, Daddy, it's especially unsettling when they're staring at you. <laughs> we, can, we can process that. I want you to know something. We have a Heavenly Father that the moment you call for Him, Abba, you have his full attention. Can I tell you a secret? You had it before you called him. Our prayers should be intimate. There's things that I say to my wife that are just between me and her. You're not allowed in that conversation. And there are things between me and God that are just between me and him. You're not allowed in that one either. But some of us are too busy, are too distracted, discouraged or whatever else, to give him the time of day, let alone really be intimate in our conversations with him. You know what else his prayer is? It's informed. He knows what he's talking about when he prays. Can you pray things that are ill-informed? Oh, God in heaven, I'm going to Biloxi next week, and I want you to just bless my efforts for the Lord's sake. Don't, don't bother praying that. Don't bother praying that. That's ill-informed. What does Jesus say in his prayer? Verse 36, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Is that accurate? You do well to be informed when you pray of what God can and can't do. This is a biblically informed faith. I hate to keep harping on it. The Family Life Center. I got no idea how he's going to do it. But you know what I remind him of every time I pray about it? Lord, this is nothing for you. I know that with you all things are possible. The Bible has informed me of that. Listen to this closely. When you aren't sure what God will do, look to the Scriptures to be reminded of what he can do. And that'll be enough. an isolated prayer, persistent prayer, honest prayer, an intimate prayer, an informed prayer, a submissive prayer. Verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Now, if I'm right about what he's asking for, and I may not be, 
if I'm right about what he's asking for, he is so submissive to the Father, if it's your will for me to die in this garden and redemption to be thwarted, I'll submit to that. If he is truly praying to miss the cross and do this some other way, Father, if it's your will that I go to that cross, I will. You see, Jesus was not just saying something cute to the disciples when he said, After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And earth as it is in heaven. He lived it. He lived it. You know what else? This was a consistent prayer. Look at verse number, uh, now where'd it go? 39. He's gone, told the disciples to wake up, pray, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Verse 39, again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. Now, he's not talking about vain repetitions. We know we're not supposed to pray vain repetitions, but that has more of the idea of something that we just say, something that's ritualistic that we put no thought into. But I'm going to tell you, I pray the same things every night. Well, every day, really. But when we say our family prayers, there are certain things that I ask God for every night. I ask him to use my kids mightily. I ask him to save Asher early, just as I did with his sister. I, I ask him to protect my family. I ask him to, to, to prosper our efforts. to serve. I ask for these things every night. It's not a vain repetition. It's something that we need. And we should get consistent in our prayer lives. An agony of spirit. An agony of soul. And yes, we also see an agony of body. Go over to Luke 22 with me, would you? We're going to leave Mark and go to Luke's account because Mark doesn't give us this. It's interesting. Who gives us the medical things that are going on? Dr. Luke? Luke 22, verse 43. Jesus has prayed all these things. And it says in verse number 43, there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Verse 44, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. As with the spirit, the injured soul will affect the body. You see that in David a lot. Some of the Psalms that are written, it's evident that when David's spirit or his soul isn't right, he feels it in his body. It's true the other direction too. If you have a prolonged illness or injury or something like that, can that affect your spirit and your soul? Sure. I'm thinking of a dear lady right now. She's not with us anymore, but a dear lady right now that had a pretty major surgery. And as is common, this is not uncommon at all. She, uh, she had a period of real discouragement while she was recovering. That's not uncommon. 
because her body wasn't what she felt like it ought to be. It affected her soul and her spirit. And so now we see an agony of body. It has a clear physical effect on Jesus. We see this angel ministering to him. It kind of reminds us to Matthew 4.11, doesn't it? When he was done being tempted of the devil. By the way, he wasn't tempted three times. Those are three representative temptations. The Bible says he was tempted for 40 days. 40 days of nonstop temptation from the devil. In addition to that, he fasted those 40 days. So at the end of those 40 days, what, what word do you suppose would best describe him physically? I think weak. He was weak. Now, he was strong in the spirit, but he was weak physically. And what happened? An angel came and ministered to him. Jesus is in this garden, and he has so poured out his spirit and soul that he is weakened. And an angel comes to minister to him, but then it says he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is actually a documented trauma. This does happen. This is not poetic language. It has been documented that people in great emotional, physical, or spiritual duress can get so um, affected by that that the stress bursts the capillaries, the blood vessels in their scalp, and they begin to sweat blood. Just as a matter of theology, they drop to the ground somewhere, sometime, the Holy Ghost snuck in and collected those blood drops, put them in a basin. Why? Because the Bible says of Jesus, that will not suffer that holy one to see corruption. If his, blood, if his bones don't corrupt and his body doesn't corrupt, you better believe his precious blood didn't corrupt either. All due respect to some theologians I've heard of, his blood did not just go in the ground and dry up. Every drop of it is maintained. Not a drop of it was wasted. And so when he is arrested, and that's what we'll talk about next, his arrest, what do they, what do they see? They see a man with a bloodied face already shedding his blood. Already. What a tragic thing that when Judas kissed him, he kissed the very blood that would have saved him had he just asked. With the Lord's help, next week we get into the arrest. His agony this week, his arrest next week.